Hey, good morning, guys. We are uh, nearing the end of summer. So uh, if you if you didn't realize that, um, there was a massive thunderstorm that reminded you that we're nearing the end of summer. So in, in one week, we went from 102 degrees down to 70. So uh, welcome to the valley. If you're new here, uh, this is what we do. Um, but uh, yeah, so because we're ending summer, that also means our Summer of Psalms series is getting a little bit closer to the end. And so we have through the rest of August to enjoy uh, the Psalms. And then uh, when September rolls around, we're going to be digging right back into uh, Matthew chapter 6 and finishing up our Sermon on the Mount series that we began like six months ago. So hopefully we'll be able to, to work our way through that and see what God has in store for us in in that series, but uh, this morning we are we're continuing on in the Psalms, and what we've been doing. If you're if you're new here, welcome. Uh, my name is Jacob. I'm the teaching and vision pastor here. We are glad to have you. Uh, we welcome you, and uh, man, I just pray that today is a a day of encouragement for you. Uh, we've been taking one Psalm a week, and we've been basically we're peering through what what N.T. Wright calls the the window to the soul. Because the Psalms are an expression of emotion. Uh, it's a response to the, both the blessings and the hardships of life that we encounter. And in all of this, as you're looking through and you're seeing, man, this is, this is the roller coaster wave of human life and emotion and, and experience and identity. What, what the Psalms show us is that shining through that window... Is the light of God's nature and his character and, and what he does uh, to, to guide us and to change us and, and redirect us toward his goodness. So the Psalms essentially, for us, they can become for us a vehicle for prayer. This way of, of communicating with the living God. And, and as we're going to find this morning, prayer is not just uh, asking a powerful being for whatever we want slash need. Instead, is an agent of intimacy. A, a, a context where I can be truly honest with myself and with God, and, and perhaps most powerfully, God will be most honest with me. So with that, we're going to pray and, and we're going to dig into uh, our text this morning. Father, we just, uh, my, my prayer is that this morning would be uh, a day where we just continue to turn our hearts to you, that, that we, are, we open ourselves up to, to not just hearing from your word, but believing it, trusting in it, following after it. God, my prayer is that you would speak and that we would listen. Not just this morning, in all of our lives. And we thank you for the gift that you offer of revealing yourself to us, bringing comfort and life and, 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 and healing and, and movement to us. We thank you for, for what you are and for what you are all about. We praise your name. Amen. 
All right, so this morning we are diving into Psalm 81. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start moving your way over there. And we're just going to kind of journey through Psalm 81 today. Uh, Psalm 81 is, uh, was curious. It stood out to me as I was preparing this week because uh, it's, it's mostly God speaking to us and not the other way around. We've kind of become used to, as we're reading in the Psalms, these, these poets and singers and and, um, and, and people who are just sort of crying out to God in the midst of their own situations, their own uh, experiences, their own places in life, and asking for God to respond, and, and knowing that he will because of his character is this or this or that. And so uh, we, we kind of get accustomed to that, and so it's almost kind of jarring to read something like Psalm 81, where it's not so much we who are speaking— but it is God who is speaking to us. And before you think, wait, that's not a prayer, you said the Psalms were prayers. So how can it be a prayer if I'm not talking, if God is apparently talking? Well, what is prayer? Prayer is is talking to, is having a conversation with God. If you are taking up all the airspace, is that a conversation? No, that's a monologue, right? We have gotten really good at monologuing before our creator, not so much having a one-on-one conversation with him. So what we see here is is five times in this this relatively short piece of poetry, the word shema is repeated. And shema is Hebrew for listen, hear, obey, respond. So in this prayer... Your job is not to speak, but to listen, not, to, not to, uh, to use all the words, as my friend TJ reminds me so often. You don't have to use all the words. You can use some of the words. You can use some good words. You don't have to use all of the words. You don't have to preach for an hour and a half. You, can only, you only have to preach for 40 minutes, and you can still use good words, but not all the words. So our job is not to use all of the words, but in it said, take this moment to sit and be still and listen. And then as God leads, you follow. All right? You follow? So we'll go ahead and open your Bibles, Psalm chapter, Psalm 81, if you have it. We're going to start out in verse 1 this morning, and we're going to read four and a half verses. All right? Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout in triumph to the God of Jacob. Lift up a song. Play the tambourine, the melodious lyre, and the harp. Blow the horn on the day of our feasts, during the new moon and during the full moon. For this is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He set it up as a decree for Joseph when he went throughout the land of Egypt. All right, so, so what, is, what is going on here just in this beginning passage? The, the psalmist is not David this time, but uh, Asaph, David's worship leader. Uh, David, uh, Asaph pens 12 of the 150 psalms in the Bible, and it includes this one. And he starts us out with this command to sing and play instruments and hold a worship service to God, a lot like what we just did here. We sang and played instruments. 
and worship to God. And Asaf is, is alluding here to this, this ritual celebration of the new moon, and, and it was a, a, a minor feast at the time. They would have major feasts. Those are the big ones that once a year, and they're just massive. And then they have minor celebrations. And this one is a, a minor celebration that says, like, hey, we made it through another month. Like, good job, guys. Uh, that's essentially what this feast was all about. Hey, there's a new moon. <laughs> that means we didn't die, right? We're still here for another month. Celebration time. Um, now, there's something different, though, in, in this, I think, because, uh, you know, it, it begs the question of why do we sing and play instruments every Sunday and have a period of worship every week? Why do we do that? Is it tradition or habit? I mean, like, what, if, what would happen if we didn't sing every week? What if we didn't play uh, all, we don't, obviously, we don't play tambourines or lyres and harps, so we're, we're a little bit behind the curve, but, so what if we didn't have all of that? Could you still, would God be upset with us if we didn't do that? Could we still worship, in other words, we could turn, could we still not turn the posture of our, of our minds and our hearts and our attitudes toward the creator? And, and, and could that continue to happen without music or singing or tambourines or harps or horns? And the answer is yes, but that's not really the point here. So, yes, we absolutely can, but, but look, what's, look what's going on specifically in, in, in Psalm 81. This isn't a, necessarily a psalm that is universally commanding us to, to sing and, and play instruments all of the time. This is, this is a particular type of worship. It is a sound of joy. It's not just uh, a turning of our attention or our focus. It's, it's this expression of happiness. It's a shout of victory. It is this loud gesture of appreciation toward a very strong God. And last week we talked about how God is a merciful and gracious God. Now this week we, we talk about how he is a strong God. And that strength is not like, as an attribute of God, it's not like, uh, he, it's not referring to some like abstract power that God has in his back pocket that he's capable of exercising whenever he wants. Instead, it's this very real and known act of rescue and redemption. God is a strong God, and he proves it by rescuing you. It's saying, I know God is a strong God because of what God has done to show me his strength. Now, that is, that is the one thing, that this is a very particular type of worship. But the second part is, this is not only a response to what God has done, but the people of God are commanded to sing with joy. Now hold on. Commanded to worship? You're telling me, you're telling me that I have to sing songs and be joyful no matter what. You're telling me I have to sing songs and be happy about it? 
How many of you came this morning without coffee, early, your kids were a nightmare, and you barely got to church, and you're like, I will sing songs, but I won't be happy about it. Or I'll be happy, but I'm not singing songs. you got to pick one or the other. Like, it's one or the other. I can't give you both today, right? Or bring me some coffee, and we'll talk later, okay? Maybe our services need to be 1.30, 2 o'clock or something. Like, if we all get naps, we prepare, and then now we can do this, right? That's not what God is talking about here. And, and you might hear that and say, okay, the Bible commands me to sing and to sing with joy. Some of you will just accept that flat out. You have no problems worrying about that concept. Totally fine with that. Some of you are going to say, like, I hear it. I don't even, doesn't even, like, I don't even think about it. It's not even a question for me. But, but many of you will hear this and struggle in part, in one part, because we don't like being told what to do, right? Who likes being told what to do? You're telling me I have to do this. Come on now. But in, in another part, we also, there's a fear that our worship and our singing and our playing of music will be compromised by being compelled. It's inorganic and inauthentic and fake. Now, in response to that, I just, I want to say that I have, I, me personally, I have become convinced that the Bible is not a rule book filled with arbitrary commands and empty ritual. Acts, in other words, that are meant to produce something in you. As if, if you were to serve on enough ministry teams, which is not a thing in the Bible, um, or will make you more of a servant, or uh, worshiping on Sunday will make you a more worshipful creature. That's not how it works. Instead, I have come to understand that every command, every decree, every statute and ordinance is rooted in God's nature and in his work to redeem you, to rescue you, to save you from certain death and destruction. God says, I, I want you to worship because. There's always a because or a for in there. You are commanded to worship because you were going this way, you were in slavery and bondage, you had made a path for yourselves that I did not offer you, and you were lost, and I, being a strong God, rescued you and brought you back and redeemed you. I did the work to save you from destruction. I gave you a new name, Christian Church and I made you my family, and so everything that I'm instructing of you from here on out is going to be rooted and founded upon that fact. So in other words, just, just as a quick introduction to what we're getting into, this call to worship, you don't worship because you're supposed to, nor do you worship because you think you're going to get something out of it. You worship because he saved your life, because he gave you life and freedom. So worship. Our, our, our command is a response and a command. Go therefore and sin no more. Go therefore and worship. 
And, and then, so it starts fairly, like we're used to psalm language like this. Sing for joy and raise instruments and play this sort of stuff. We're like, okay, psalms, it's a song, we get it, it's worship. And then the psalmist says this totally strange thing. Verse 5. He says, I heard an unfamiliar language. I relieved his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from carrying the basket. You called out in distress, and I rescued you. I answered you from the thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Asaf says here in the beginning, he says, Now, uh, I, heard a, I heard a voice. I heard a language. I did not recognize it. And if I, if I did, I, I did not acknowledge it. There was an unknown voice that has called out to me. And so what is that voice that he is hearing? Now, this is interesting. If you have your Bibles open, if you go back and look at the previous two Psalms, Psalm 79 and Psalm 80, uh, Asaph wrote, uh, Asaph wrote both of those Psalms. And, and each, in each one, there is this this crying out to God for deliverance. There are enemies all around pressing him in on both sides and they're threatening his existence. And so there's a bit of a questioning that, that, that springs out of, of Asaph's cry of lament. He says, how long, Yahweh? Will you be angry forever? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? C.S. Lewis refers to this as, as putting God on the dock, putting him on the spot and, and setting your expectations before him. It's like saying, God, I need your help. Things are tough, and it seems like you are nowhere to be found. So if you really are here, if you are actually God and can do all of the things that I think you can, I'm expecting you to show up and take care of all of this. It reminds me a lot of that kind of dating scenario where it's like, if you loved me, you would blank, right? That sort of thing. Take out the trash. Buy me a ring. That sort of stuff. If you love me, then you would do this. And it seems, uh, I think, kind of irreverent to do that sort of thing to God, Right? I guess one thing to do that in, in, in that sort of scenario, but it's another thing to, to ask God the same question. If you were truly God, would you, would you finally show up? There's sort of an irreverence to that idea. The Psalms do show us, though, that that, that kind of questioning, that kind of irreverent cry, God is, if there is a God who is able to handle that sort of thing, it is this God here. It is this Yahweh who is able to say, I get that you're frustrated. I get that you're angry. He is endlessly patient, right? Exodus 34 says he is slow to anger or long of nostrils, right? So he can take in the frustration, right? He has shoulders to bear your burdens. But here's the thing. Yes, you can put God on the spot. But be prepared for him to answer you when you do. You can put God on the spot, but be prepared for his answer 
because it might not be what you're hoping for. You called out in distress, how long, Yahweh? And I rescued you. I answered you from the thundercloud. And his answer may not fit your expectations. I had a professor who shared with me how uh, people used to come up to him all the time uh, for prayer at his church. And they would say, like, they would approach him and say, Steve, can you, can you pray for me? I am having such a hard time with blank. And, and so his answer to them, uh, I just, I love it. Uh, he would say, you know, I would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. Just don't be surprised by how I pray for you. Okay? And so then he would, he would pray for them. And, and, and what he would end up doing was he would pray for them as they actually needed, not necessarily what they asked for. So if they came to him, uh, so let's say you came to him asking for God to fix your boat. And that's a true story. I've actually had that happen to me. Uh, my boat is broken. Pray that God would fix my boat for me. And you're like, that, okay. Uh, you need God to fix your boat. All right. And so, uh, so he might pray, God, I ask that so-and-so's heart would be turned toward you so that his boat wouldn't matter so much anymore whether fixed or not, that his heart would be seeking after you and your goodness, that all of his happiness and his joy would be found in you. And apparently the prayer request started to thin out a little bit after that. Have you ever considered what you go to God for or why you are going to him for it? If you're, if you're having trouble, in other words, if you're, if you're going to God and you're getting the wrong answers, it's most likely you're asking the wrong questions, very possibly. If you're not getting the answers you're looking for, you're probably not asking the right questions. And there's this fallacy, I think, that faith is all about owing. I owe God because he saved me. And so I have to go to church and pray and read my Bible and dress plainly and I can only laugh at the, the right jokes and not the wrong jokes and I can never cuss and that, and that it will be me paying my debts back, right? Because I owe him for what he has done for me. Also, if I, along the way, happen to build up enough credit, if I show up enough and do enough good things for God, then guess what? God will owe me. And so then, when I go to him and ask him for something, a new career, a spouse, better-behaved kids, better friends, he's got to make good. Give and take, that's how it works, right, God? Uh-huh. Give and take. I give to you, you give to me, and that's how we do this. But that's not how it works. See, we want results. We pray with the mindset of results. God wants relationships. We want to do church and religion and morality, and there has to be some sort of payout in the end, whether the church gets bigger or more successful, my legacy gets established, my kids become Christians, uh, maybe I get to go to heaven and sip umbrella drinks on, on cloudy beaches, if that's your idea of paradise. Or, or I have God's eye and everybody sees what a success I am in the world. 
If I can get results for God, he ought to get results for me. But God's not about results. Not from you and not from him. He is all about relationships. The only result that God cares about is that you know him and that you are known by him. He wants to know you. He wants trust and commitment and dependency. He wants you to find your value in knowing him, not in knowing what he can get for you. See, I know that my marriage will suffer every time that I make it about what I hope to get out of it instead of how much I love and care for my wife. And I I do love her, but sometimes that love can get clouded and distorted when I bring other outside expectations into it. When I make marriage about results, what's in it for me? my relationship with my wife suffers. When you make your pursuit of following Jesus all about results, what's in it for you? Your relationship with God suffers. So God has something to say for you. He's going to speak up now, and the first thing he says is Selah. And we heard Selah, a few weeks ago, has multiple different uh, possible interpretations. It could mean rest. It could mean rise or stand up. It could also mean silence. And so what I'm going to, my interpretation today is shut up and listen. It's the only time it's in there, so that's the only time I'll say it. But, all right, Selah, guys, listen up. This is the word that God has for you right now. Verse 8. Listen, my people, and I will admonish you. Israel, if only you would listen to me. There must not be a strange God among you. You must not bow down to a foreign God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own plans. Listen, my people. If only you would listen. The Hebrew word here is shema, and it means to hear, but it also, at the, at the same time, it's two sides of the same coin. It means to hear, but it also means to obey. It's this idea of hearing more than with just your ears, but when the voice of authority speaks, you not only listen, but you follow. When I tell my kids, clean up your room, I know that they hear me, but do they hear me? I'll soon find out, won't I? Do they hear and understand and trust and follow? Or do they hear and then dismiss and go their own way? 
my youngest is learning this art of how to hear and not listen. Uh, so when I, when I set him down and I tell him, son, punching your sister is not something that we do around here, his eyes immediately start to dart all the way around the room, right? What, what else can I think about, focus on, pay attention to other than this right now? This is uncomfortable. This puts me in the, in the seat of responsibility. What else can I focus on here? And so uh, usually like his, his direct response to that question, dude, we don't punch people. Seems like a pretty straightforward answer. His response to me is, have you seen my new Legos? Look how funny those kittens are over there. Did you know that I'm wearing green pants today? If I want my son to not just hear me, but to actually listen, I have to literally put my hands on the side of his face to where he's looking, and he can still only look at my face, and I have to get right in close, and I have to say, buddy, don't punch your sister. You got me? Okay. He has to hear only me. There are other distractions, other things, other, other voices that are calling out to him, clanging symbols that tune out the voice that he needs to hear right now, the voice of his father. Look at what God is saying right here. Listen, I know you're crying out for help. You are so good, by the way, Israel, at lifting up your voices and your highs in prayer when you need it. And I know what you want, but here's what you need. I am your God. No other gods before me. No idols, no images, no foreign deities, just me. Remember? Later on, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, and he gives you this imagery that, that I think is entirely appropriate here. He says, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of trouble, they will say, arise and save us. And so the imagery is like this. It's like God is here calling to you, and you turn your back, but you're still looking behind saying, God, I'm here. You can come along this way if you want. I'm going this way. But if I get into trouble... I know where to find you. That's the idea. You're turning your back towards God and his rays, but your head still stays kind of pointed over saying, I, we're still good. I'm still, I can still see you. We're, we're okay. We can walk away from God's plans for us, his directions of life and safety and hope, but we can look back and say, God, are you still there just in case I need you? And that's a strange image, but man, we do it all the, all the time. God is here in Psalm 81 saying, if you open your mouth, I will fill it. I will feed you and clothe you and take care of you. You will find rest in me, satisfaction in me. You will find everything you need in me. And yet, the ultimate perpetual temptation is that we hear God's voice, but we do not heed God's voice. We do not open ourselves up to the plans of God, but we have plans of our own. And in our stubbornness, God will relent and give us over to our plans, our stuff. 
he's not about results. He's about relationship. As a pastor, I think one of the greatest reasons why we tend to find struggle and, and difficulty in the church is, is that we either dream too small or too big. When we dream too small, we make God smaller than he is. Oh, that's too dangerous. That's too risky. Look at what we'd have to give up. Look at, look at how much we have to change. Let's just be content with what we have. And when we do that, we make God too small. We can take him totally out of the equation when our plans are rooted in us and in fear. Now, at the same time, all you big dreamers out there, we can also dream too big. We can also dream too big. And when we dream too big, what we fall into is we end up demanding more than what God actually offers us. We can expect more from him than what he is meant to give us. And we become bigger than we are or should be. If God is with us, then we can do everything we want. Change everything. Spend it all. Build it. Leave it. Run. Grow. And we make God smaller than he is. In my experience, the issue always comes when it's about my dreams and what I want and what I'm hoping for and what I'm expecting instead of God's dreams and God's desires and God's hopes and God's expectations for our church. Our elders and pastors have uh, begun this radical new thing in our meetings, and it's called prayer. Um, we were praying before, but we're really praying now. There's a bit of a difference in that when I mean that word. We are praying now. And so we, what we're doing is we're changing the way that we've, we've come to think about how we meet and process things together and come to decisions and directions for the church. And so uh, what we do now is we start our meetings by saying, God, here's all the stuff we've been thinking about, but we want to know what you would have us do, where you would want us to go. So we're just going to shut up and listen to you for a while. And then we just wait we quietly sit and wait. And then we commit to moving when we sense God moving first. And let me tell you what, it is a powerful thing to see grown men lying on the ground with their posture just fully prostrated before the Lord, not talking, not crying out, just hearing, just listening, just waiting for God to move first. And this helps us as ministry leaders from falling into the temptation of being fix-it-all, know-it-all, everywhere for all leaders who want things to happen right now. And instead, we're learning to recognize our limitations, to know that we are not God and that our ways, however well-intentioned we hope, we hope they are, however much we think they're going to be amazing and great and powerful, that, that those things may be rooted more in a human dream for results instead of God's dreams for relationships. We have found that some of the stumbles and tumbles that our church has taken have tended to rise up when our dreams have been either too big or too small. 
and God ultimately is not involved. And we haven't taken the time to listen. And so because of that, I I firmly believe that the future of our church and the future of our people will depend largely on our capacity to listen first and then follow. At the end of Psalm 81, God starts pleading with his people. He says, verse 13, if only my people would listen to me, And Israel would follow my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cower to him. Their doom would last forever. But he would feed Israel with the best wheat. I would satisfy you with honey from the rock. John Calvin's commentary says, uh, Like a man weeping and lamenting, like a saddened father... God cries out at the wretchedness we impose upon ourselves. And you can just hear that in his voice, him saying, if only my people would listen and follow, then rescue for enemies would come, fear would flee, satisfaction would be found. I would save you from the mess of your own making. As he mentions some of this imagery, it's, it's, it's pointing and redirecting Israel's attention back to the wilderness and their journey through it. And he's saying, even when Israel, like when Israel depended fully and completely, then all of their needs were taken care of. And even when it looked like desolation and decay and barrenness were right in front of them, this sweetness of honey would just start oozing out of rocks and satisfy the people. But that satisfaction can only come when, as God says, you finally stop and shema, listen. Our tendency to fill up the airspace, to use all the words, is is a somewhat of a defense mechanism, a a device that we use to determine our own pathways to the trajectory of our journey. If I'm the only one asking the questions, I'm the only one that gets the answers. If I'm the only one speaking, I'm the only one I hear. Right? We end up determining the trajectory of our journey for ourselves turn our backs, and we tilt our heads. And that becomes the thing that leads to desolation and wasteland and destruction. I have a friend who's been struggling lately with hearing from God, and he's questioning him, and he's been really uncertain about where uh, he is or, or why, where, why God doesn't respond or move. And the big issue, at least from what I can gather, is that his back is turned, but not his face. So he's, it's like he's seeking out God as he walks away. And, and as he's walking away, God's face gets further and further and further beyond him. So what do you do then? And he finds himself, ultimately, as he's walking away, he finds himself in a wilderness situation. And so what do you do when you are in a wilderness? 
you do what my friend does. You seek after whatever relief or comfort or pleasure that you can find. What will help me no longer experience pain, even for a short, brief amount of time? That may be sex, self-medication, endless media distractions, That may be revenge, that may be, um, that may be inflicting pain on others. Whatever you can do to briefly, momentarily satisfy yourself so that you don't experience pain for at least a few seconds. And I'm watching this friend and I'm heartbroken over it. I'm, I'm like a sad dad, as 21st century Calvin would have put it. I'm like a sad dad because he's, he's, he's seeking for sweetness in the rocks and in the desert. He's pursuing pleasure wherever it can be found, and his life is just this roller coaster of extreme highs and lows. I had the best night of my life. I had the worst morning ever. I, had the, I have the best friends. I have the worst enemies. The greatest moment of my life just happened. The worst moment of my life just happened. And it's just over and over and over again. And I'm, I'm watching this journey of destruction where he's being used by friends and filled with revenge for his enemies. And, and all I want to do is cry out to him and say, Stop! You keep asking, where is God? Where is the sweetness of God? And you're hoping for results but you're pursuing fruitless and meaningless relationships outside of the one that can actually offer it to you. God is not a God of results. He is a God of relationship. If you pursue God intending results and he offers you relationship, will you be satisfied? And if he doesn't, and you go out and you pursue results, and you are still not satisfied, you'll still find God crying out to you in the same way. What I long to share with my friend is that the hope that I have is not that God will produce in me a better, more successful life by the world's standards. Because if you are looking for that kind of sweetness in God, you are looking in the wrong place because God is not interested in results like that. He just wants your heart. And there is a sweetness in him that I struggle to explain where my life is going terribly and yet I still find rest. And my life can be frustrating or unfair and I can still have hope. And it's not because my life suddenly got better or less frustrating or more fair. Only that those things need not bother me, need not determine my attitude or my, my determination, my decisions or my trust. It is a mysterious gift of God to be satisfied in him. Even when the rest of your life, according to the, the criteria of the world, is unsatisfying. 
If you need a God to give you a life that measures up to your expectation, that fits your dreams, that makes your wildest expectations come true, you don't need God. You need to win the lottery. But only God can make the restless heart find rest. It's not in what you do, but in what God has already done. It's not in the results. It's in the relationship. Only God can provide honey from a rock. Amen? Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning is that restless hearts would find rest in you. That joyless souls can find joy in you. That we would not find your commands to worship to be meaningless or uneventful or worthless pursuits. That they would be rooted in what you have done. Father, as we pray, help us to listen. As we sing, help us to reflect. As we go, help us to trust. We thank you for all that you are, all that you do. And I thank you for the relationship that you offer to each and every one of us. May we not be tempted by results. May we be satisfied by relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.